Hello out there, all you beautiful bluebirds. Welcome to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. It's great to be here with you another week. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am here with the fantastic Casey, my my wonderful co-host partner in crime. Casey, it's been two weeks. It's lovely to see your face again. Good to be back. It's great to see yours, too. We're back. We took a, a rare little spot of time off there and uh now theoretically we're refreshed however i know that you're <laughs> i i don't know that either of us would describe ourselves that way and you caught covid i got covid oh. it took so long but i finally it caught up to me and i'm very mad about it but but also doing just fine i really only had one bad day and i'm very thankful for that i would say that i'm next to fully recovered right now I'm thankful that that's that's the experience that you've had with it as well it's yes. it's no fun so yes I'm glad you're getting through it uh I don't did you uh watch the game last night <laughs> yeah. sorry <laughs> sorry Casey uh, this is, it's we're, we're at post Super Bowl uh yeah. Monday when we're recording this so I did post our superb owl episode I on did see that Instagram. I would I just want to Put out there that I was not consulted about the go <laughs> I didn't know you had a horse in the game. <laughs> I don't really, but I I, know, I have some family that are big Chiefs fans. Fair enough. So. <laughs> well, you can tell. But I knew. That I knew. Casey I knew. was the one in charge I, of that one. <laughs> I I knew you would be, and I was not uh not disturbed by it at all. I thought it was funny, but I'm sorry. Sorry for your loss. <laughs> yes, it was a uh, what a bummer. There are some things going through the news that I think that maybe in the next couple of weeks we should do a little bit of a news roundup. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention is if you're concerned about the price of eggs right now <laughs> um, with how high it is, we did do an episode last year about the avian influenza and there's starting to become more news of that where it's starting to jump some species. So we'll probably do an update with that in the next couple of weeks because um, that's just definitely something that is worth noting in both the nature and current events sort of space. Mm-hmm. I considered also doing this episode about the train derailment also in Ohio, where there are at least some pollutants that have been released, but I wanted to wait till there's more information out there that connected a little bit more to, you know, that situation gets slightly more resolved than it is right now before we started going too in depth. Yeah, I had seen some of that as well and and thought the same thing. It just felt like there was not a whole lot of information that I would yeah. be able to impart any way that would be any any better than than th- there's just not a lot out there right now mm-hmm. and certainly nothing that I would understand any better than what is currently well being and reported, it would be so. immediately outdated basically yeah. <laughs> so yeah but if you haven't heard about that it is what I'm I'm starting to see a little more yeah. widely shared uh, pieces of information so it's definitely something to keep an eye out on I wanted to point out on in sort of happier, yeah, uh, kind of space, I guess. No, j- but just uh, that the great backyard bird count is coming up yeah. this week. And I feel like I always forget to mention it until it's too late. So just know, uh, I mean, I guess when this comes out, it's going to be like right then. But uh, we'll post about this uh, on our social media too. But it's February 17th through the 20th. So you have uh, a few days after you're listening to this episode, if you're listening to it on release day, anyway, that you can still participate in the great backyard bird count. So I'm hoping to participate, although of course that falls over my work week. So we shall see if I get a chance to do it. I have done it a long time ago in years past, and it is fun to be a part of of something. Just lots of people coming together to celebrate, celebrate slash learn more slash participate in citizen science. Uh, so great backyard bird count coming up soon. Yeah, uh, this is probably, if you're in the Northeast, a really good time to do it because it's been like 50 to 60 degrees every day here so the number of birds that i've been seeing is a lot higher than normal (laughs) um and that kind of leads us into our episode today sarah do you have any more news before we go forward nope all right so it was 56 degrees here today in the middle of february which is uh, basically unheard of (laughs) where i'm from in florida i'm sure that's a little bit 
more of the cold end of what you might be experiencing. But it definitely is one of those things where I'm walking around going, this is like, it's nice out. And it's a little scary. (laughs) Um, and, And working at a garden center, not only are we seeing more birds around more people are calling being like hey do you have your veggies in hey can i plant my pansies now and it's the middle of february and you shouldn't really be able to do either of those things and the weather could turn at any minute so it's hard to to know what to recommend to people um but they're they're like i don't want to miss it when you have your veggies when that's normally two months away from right now so um it got me thinking more about climate change of course um and some of the myths that you sometimes hear talked about in conjunction with climate change. And so today I want to tackle just a couple of them of common things that you might hear from some people who um, might not quite understand the science behind climate change or might have um, some trouble grasping exactly what's going on here. So Sarah, my question for you is how do you approach conversations with people that you disagree with? You know that I am very non-confrontational. <laughs> yeah. I do not like conflict. I am not an arguer. I'm also not one, and I I always hate to say, like, I'm not, it's not that I don't have strongly held beliefs, it's just that I don't oftentimes find it necessary to argue them or even feel like I can articulate arguments for them very well. (laughs) They're just sort of gut-held beliefs, and that's not to say that I don't have information to back them up, it's just I don't catalog it well, I guess, (laughs) in my brain, if that makes sense. So it's a hard question for me, and so I think I I really don't, I I, I try to avoid conflict in in discussions, which is not always necessarily the best way to be, but what I do think is good about it is that I do try to approach people with understanding, even if I know somebody is wrong about something, like factually, I know that they are wrong about something. I don't want to make things worse. I don't want to make the divide worse. So I want to make a point to listen to them and understand why maybe they think the things that they do or where they're getting the information that they're getting it. Like why, why is this belief so important to them? Where is this information coming from? And I just try to listen, and listening doesn't mean I agree with them or uh, or anything like that, but I just <laughs> get so exhausted by division uh, that I think that's step number one for me is just listening to other people to try to understand where they're coming from. And then honestly, sometimes I have to step away. I, I will listen. I will, you know, hopefully if I give them the space to say their piece, they're going to let me share my piece too, but... Uh, but sometimes I have to step away and I have to go like think through, okay, here's what they said. What can I say to them? I have to like step away and kind of plan out my response or what I would say in response to their arguments. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, is I definitely think that there's a point where conversations are not necessarily productive to both parties um, and and from your own <laughs> your own perspective like you need to be able to respect your own mental part of it um i try and approach these conversations by trying to like you said listen but also listen specifically for things that we might agree on mm-hmm. like that kernel basis where you know we both agree that in this case of climate that the environment's important or like right. having um a <laughs> safe healthy atmosphere is important to both of us. So how do we start talking about where we can both agree on in that? Mm -hmm. And that little piece of agreement might be a productive way to start um, because I think trying to change someone's whole mindset on something like climate change in one conversation is probably bigger than most people can accomplish. Yeah, I agree. And I love that. I think that's a really nice piece to start on is look for the spots where we agree because I think so many people overlook that. I also want to say that I am not saying that I'm good at this all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I I can get pretty heated about conversations, Um, but that is especially when this was my job and more of a work capacity, it's a lot easier. (laughs) Well, I want to say too, and this is maybe going off on a tangent from what your actual question was, but I think, you know, these types of conversations you have to choose your battles. You know, I just, I'm not a person that believes that yelling at somebody over the internet that you don't even know is 
hardly ever going to be very, you know, so I might approach things a little bit differently if it's a work conversation versus, you know, a super close trusted friend conversation versus, you know, an acquaintance when I'm out with a group, you know, the way that you can approach those conversations can all be a little bit different too. Well, we're going to talk about some, uh, situations at least if someone presents you with an argument on climate particulars mm-hmm. um on how to understand it for yourself and then maybe articulate it to the other person as well so if you stick around we're going to tackle a couple climate myths All right, we're back with our main portion of our episode talking about some climate myths that you guys might run into um, and kind of debunking them, talking about where the kernel of truth is in there and where it might get a little bit skewed. I wanted to to have some guidelines going forward, uh, things I try and keep in my brain when I'm talking to someone. The first is that many of the talking points we're about to to talk about are not necessarily the person that you're talking to's original thought that they have used their logic to get to. It's important to note that fossil fuel companies and political action groups and lots of other people who have stake in things kind of staying the same have really strategically placed some of these arguments as ways to either try and debunk how climate change works or discourage any change from the current status quo. So they've put things like op-eds in newspapers and things since like the 90s. And so the person that you're talking to may have heard this from several different sources and that this is not their like own opinion that they've done the research for. They've just heard it from people who sound official a lot. Um, And for me, that helps sort of forgive a lot of aspects of this because you have a trusted bubble and if you're absorbing information from this trusted bubble you're more likely to trust it <laughs> you're more likely to see it as true yeah 100% and i i think that is difficult because it does feel like it is very official and ultimately like i haven't ever done any climate science right. research so i am getting my information from trusted sources the difference i mean you can what i I'm getting my information from NASA and climate right. scientists that, that are doing the things, but 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 it, it is very understandable to me some of these sources that you can get this information of from, and you know whether it's that or you know just from family and friends and all of that, like that's just kind of how the dissemination of information works. So it, it is understandable. Right. And what you've just pointed out there, Sarah, is that like it's not like you're a climate scientist trying to convince anyone of your work. Nope, um, I'm just climate... trying to figure it out, too. <laughs> right. And c- climate is at a scale, both like time wise and size wise, mm-hmm. that is so hard to wrap your head around and requires so much input of data to like prove that it's happening that it's very hard for the average person to make it feel so real. I think when we're experiencing 60 degree winters now, I think people can probably at least say that's, yeah, that's not what I remember from when I was a kid. I remember there being snow on the ground, at least where I'm at. And when you try and point out those smaller changes though, there's always a counter example somebody can right. use as well. So it's it's a very hard conversation. I feel like it is to uh, to communicate that broader point if someone's not necessarily willing to engage on it. Also climate change is scary. And so it would be way easier if it just wasn't existing. And I think some people might be living in that world because it is much easier to just be like, you know what? Things are fine. <laughs> I, I the, the things that need to change are so big and out of my control to a certain extent that why would I waste all of this anxiety and energy on this thing if I don't quite understand it and I can't control it anyway? And I think that that's also a coping mechanism. I think it can be. I think we've talked about this before. I don't necessarily have the same climate kind of anxiety that that you've talked about, but it does still feel just really big and complicated mm-hmm. and and hard to change sometimes. And so I don't. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say I have climate anxiety. I get frustrated sometimes and and overwhelmed by it be- because of that 
sort of same thing. It's just big and it would be easier if we weren't there for sure. Oh my gosh, it'd be so much easier if we, we could Which, focus on all the other things. Yeah, but I, and I think we might come back to that a little in, in, as we talk through some of these myths too, just sort of that idea that it would be easier if it, it wasn't here. Yeah. Um, the, and the last part is, is that I have been in conversations about a variety of topics with sometimes people I carry very, care very deeply about. And I think sometimes, especially when it's like your own family members, it feels more personal when you feel like you disagree on something that's like very close to your heart or you feel very strongly about the principle of the matter. And sometimes I've been in these conversations and realized that neither of us are going to change our mind. And so at some point we might just need to move on to a different conversation for the sake of our relationship and the sake of my own mental health. Because knowing that I have said my piece, they've said their piece, and we can then maybe just move on knowing that neither of us is going to change in this this relationship. I think that's okay. I think that that we don't have to be a warrior on every single issue every single time even when it's fruitless. <laughs> I yeah, I think that's important and healthy and good to recognize. There's so many climate myths out there. If you google like climate myths, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And they're from so many different angles, too, mm-hmm. um, depending on the organization that wants to, like, throw you some of their climate myths. There there are so many different ones out of there. I wanted to tackle a little bit of the science side rather than, like, the policy change side or, like, whether one thing or, or mm-hmm. something would work. Most of these come from an angle of, yes, maybe the Earth is changing, but is it really us? Are we really the contributor? What could we really do? Isn't this sort of natural rather than it's not happening at all? Because I think that we're starting to get a little bit closer to the conversation where people are acknowledging something's different or wrong, but maybe don't understand why. Right. Are are you feeling like differ or differ? Yeah. Yeah. Are you feeling like that? Like, I feel like we're progressing a little bit closer to that. I do. And I don't know if it's just the because of the cycles that I run in or not. But I do definitely feel like that is what I see and hear a little bit more these days. Yeah, I I think even like sometimes on a political standpoint, people who might have said, nope, not happening, will change a little bit more to, well, how much it is. Right. uh, And what what should what are we responsible for and et cetera. So um, I, again, wanted to tackle a little bit things from the scientific perspective and one of the first things that i will hear a lot is isn't climate change global warming sort of a normal part of the earth the earth goes through cycles maybe it's part of the sun cycle there's solar flares um and you know we've done it before and we'll live through it again is this something that you've heard people say well i'm familiar with it once again for me i hear people quote unquote say this on the internet My (laughs) even through work, my conversations around climate change have actually had very little. I've I don't know that I've often had people come to me with a very specific argument. Sure. It's just sort of like they don't know what they think about it or you you know, that that type of thing, or they're just adamant against it, but don't really have a reason why or, or something like that. Um, but this is certainly a myth that I have come across before yes and maybe maybe the most common one honestly that I come across that's yeah I, I I don't think I've had a whole lot of one-on-one conversations but I've definitely heard it talked about before and honestly it was something that I was curious about in this research well I was just gonna say because because we know that that is true to some extent we know right. that there are cooling cycles and warming cycles and so for me the, the reason that I like to read about these, like I said, I, I am not inclined to look for discussions on these things in person, but I just, I like to learn more. So to me, because I'm not a climate scientist, it's interesting to learn more about how and why we know the things that we do. So yeah, if we know that the earth does have natural warming and cooling cycles, how do we know that this isn't what this is? So I, I like reading about these myths for that reason. Yeah, I I thought this was fascinating. You brought up NASA before. I will say mm-hmm. NASA has a great, easy to understand, yes. numerous pages of climate research, climate myths, how it's actually working the science. Highly recommend going into the show notes, clicking on some of those pages. When there. you said you were doing this, that was the first place I went to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
according to NASA, while it's true that the sun and the Earth's small changes in the orbit and the sun's energy output um, have contributed, for example, to some of the last few ice ages that we've had, there are some pieces of evidence that disprove that the sun's energy output or our distance from it or solar flares, solar activity are contributing to what we're seeing right now. Now, the argument that I've seen the most that disproves it is that this warming is happening way too quickly right. to be attributed to to solar activity. I, like, I believe you, but to me, it's just, again, such a big scale that I feel like people have trouble wrapping their head around. Like, if it's not outside my lifetime, then, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the Earth was like a <laughs> yeah. thousand years ago. Like, I, I'm like, I'm sure, I believe you, but I don't think it's very convincing to the average person. I actually found the last, the second two things that I found much more interesting to me. The second one is one that I I was not really aware of, I guess, or hadn't thought about it. I like this one too. I hadn't thought about it either. So if you are someone who thought, yeah, definitely like the sun, maybe the sun has something to do with it, right? In that case, we're talking about heat coming from the sun to the earth's surface. You would expect there to be an even warming of the atmosphere throughout, or even maybe like it's warmer at the place closer to the sun than the one Mm -hmm. closer to the earth. But our surface is warming while the upper layer of the atmosphere, the stratosphere, is actually cooling, which suggests that the source of the heat is actually at the surface level rather than the sun. Like, (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. So I was like, oh, to me, that is very convincing because I can understand distance and like heat and direction much better than I can like time scales when we get to century and millennia. And again, just a, a real quick recap, I guess you you did a 60 second what is climate change thing on a previous episode. I don't remember what it was. But so what we're talking about here is this carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. We are adding this to the atmosphere and that is in effect a blanket trapping the heat in making the earth warmer so that's why having that warming yes. on this the surface level and not the outside uh is kind of suggestive of that rather right. than coming from the sun the heat's coming in it's having a hard time exiting the atmospheres yeah. quickly now the third one um and i included a picture here sarah if you yes, want to scroll down a little bit graph. um again if you want to see this you can look at the nasa pages so they have been tracking solar irradiation basically solar activity and output and wattage Um, we've had satellites up for over 40 years and then we have other ways of measuring it as well if you take a look at that map sarah there are two lines there Mm -hmm. there's a yellow line that is the solar irradiance and what general direction has that line been taking well i guess let's start with with temperature temperature is going what direction temperature is is definitely going up (laughs) Going up pretty steadily. (laughs) Right. We typically talk about like global temperatures increasing in the forms of degrees Celsius because that's what most of the world uses. And when you're talking about it, you're talking about like often like tenths of a degree Celsius. But the overall temperature change is different from the equator up to the poles. And Mm -hmm. that's what really influenced all this changing climate. Um, So the temperature is going way up. Sarah, where is solar irradiance on this? What can you describe that trend a little bit? It, I mean, it's a little more uh, throughout the whole course of this graph, which starts at uh, the year 1880 and goes to 2020. It's, I would say there's not necessarily a clear trend for a lot of the way through the map. It's kind of going up and down. But since I would say like 1980-ish on this map, it's trending more clearly downward, actually. Right. You're going to see those temperature and solar radiance parts start to diverge. Mm-hmm. If this was the sun's activity, then we should expect both of those lines to be going up. We're getting more energy from the sun, and that's why the temperatures are going up. But in reality, they found that solar activity peaked in about 1950, and since then has been on more of a downward curve. Um the sun's 
activity goes in 11 year cycles. So if you take a look, there's like some thinner lines there. I see. Yep. Yeah. Um, that like very much more widely year to year. And mm-hmm. by widely, I mean like a tenth of a degree Celsius. But overall, that trend in the last 50 to 70 years is going down. So um, I actually found that mildly terrifying <laughs> as well. I mean, hey, it's not what's causing global climate change. And overall, you would expect there to be like us getting colder under this scenario and we are not so that's something um there are some scientists who think that we are possibly and other scientists disagree um headed for a grand minimum of solar output which is a period of anywhere from a few decades to a few centuries of reduced solar activity with less solar flares this period of solar activity that's lower could result in cooling the earth in 0.3 degrees celsius which is pretty significant on a global scale, except that three years of our current carbon output neutralizes that cooling over like the centuries. So what would take potentially decades, centuries to to get very cold, what we're doing with our carbon output is basically canceling that out. And we have warmed about 1.1 degrees Celsius. So um, I found that really interesting that we have seen the Earth's climate impacted by sun cycles. Um, but what we're seeing right now, it just doesn't have that evidence of being indicative of being from the sun. Mm-hmm. So I learned something today. I was excited. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So how, how are we getting this cl- changing climate? Um, it has to do with, we call them greenhouse gases. Primarily we talk about carbon dioxide in the news. Um, and so sometimes you'll see things like maybe carbon impacts the climate, but there are lots of natural sources of carbon in the atmosphere. Um, for example, there used to be way more wildlife on Earth. And when we breathe and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more people now, like what's going on when we breathe, we exhale carbon dioxide and uh, and also volcanoes will put out lots of carbon dioxide. So can't we explain it in a natural way that way? Sarah, do you have like a natural instinct of how you would react to that scenario? Well, I think it's, first of all, it's good that people understand these things, that there (laughs) are other sources. And I think that's important. I think, you know, this is where I was going to come back to, hey, it would be easier if this weren't happening. Like, yeah. So scientists look at all these things too. Like we've looked at the natural sources of carbon dioxide and that hasn't unfortunately explained it. We, we wish it did. The, the, the other things that I feel like you would point out there is if you say, okay, there used to be so many more animals. There also used to be a lot more forests guys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're ripping those down. Uh, And so there is a natural carbon cycle. And again, that just comes back to the idea of what we have done through the industrial revolution and all of the things that we make and, and create and through, you know, the cutting down of trees and those types of things, we, we've thrown things out of balance. Yeah, I like to think of it like um, an iceberg, like the top of the iceberg is what I would consider carbon in our our cycle that's actively cycling, like mm-hmm. things that the plants are absorbing, the plants die, it releases up into the atmosphere, it gets absorbed back down through the plants, etc. Versus the bottom of the iceberg, which is a bunch of carbon in our, our system that is stored underground. Mm-hmm. And so the Earth is able to regulate a lot of that active carbon cycling, that tip of the iceberg. But the stuff underground is supposed to slowly come back up into the active cycle as other things get sucked back down and that's how we keep it in balance what we're doing is we are literally taking (laughs) things from underground (laughs) and we are burning it and (laughs) releasing it up into the atmosphere and so that is how we are changing that cycle and throwing it out of balance along with getting rid of the trees that are part of that right that absor- absorption part of it. But some people bring up volcanoes because, again, another very like large-scale, visibly globally impacting natural phenomenon, another way that this like stored carbon in the Earth that's not naturally part of the cycle is getting spewed up into the atmosphere. I think there is like a deeper understanding of science in this argument. Mm-hmm. 
what is not necessarily understood in it is that the amount of carbon dioxide that humans put out each year is more than a hundred times the output of all of Earth's volcanoes, which is also scary. Like that's, it's a volcano. It's all of them. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's important to note on the scale. I do just want to point out again, this is sort of a tangent, but I think it's a good thing to know when you're looking at climate things is, is amounts are hard. So like, Carbon dioxide, I don't believe, makes up a huge percentage of all of what is in the atmosphere. Right, correct. But it's an important gas, and smaller amounts of change within that carbon dioxide can make a big difference. Uh, So I think that's important to note. So that's a huge difference between what the volcanoes put out and what people put out. That's a good thing to know. It's also can be a tough thing when you're looking at data and when people are are making arguments and when you hear some of these myths, sometimes it's easy to skew data just by changing the scale on a graph or something right. like that. So it's just something to be aware of as you maybe are trying to to if you're hearing something that you're like, well, that doesn't sound right, or if you're trying to debunk myths uh, that that you're hearing, those are the types of things to be careful of and look out for as well. But yeah, we put out a lot of carbon dioxide relative to those volcanoes. Yeah, graphs can be manipulated to tell you just about anything. Mm-hmm. Studies can be done poorly from mm-hmm. whoever is doing them. So it is important. It's one of the reasons that when you see those um, IPCC reports come out, that they have so many authors. It's because there's so many people looking at this data, fact-checking each other, peer-reviewing each other to make sure that these studies are regularly done and repeatable and jive with all of the other things that are going on there. Um, I think volcanoes also, when they erupt, you can visually see the output and we can look up and not visually see our carbon dioxide output. It's like invisible to us most of the time, like except when I'm driving behind some truck that's spewing out some stuff. But like it's the ash and other things that are coming out of the volcano that we're seeing. Um, And interestingly, even though they do put out carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, it can contribute to warming. They also produce other gases and particulates that shield the Earth's atmosphere from absorbing the sun's heat which has historically contributed to short periods of global cooling. Interesting. So volcanoes actually can cool down the Earth's surface, which is the opposite of how we think of volcanoes. (laughs) We think of them as very hot. (laughs) Um, But I I remember there was that Icelandic volcano that went off a couple years ago that like caused all this ash to go across the sky it changed the Mm -hmm. color of the sky in in a bunch of different places in the u.s we had mount st helens erupt um within like recent human memory the current human output is about a mount st helens eruption every 2.5 hours and then I know. And then Mount Pinatubo, which is in the Philippines, erupting twice a day as well. So like it's these these visual disasters that we can see. Obviously, that's not the only thing that happens when a volcano erupts. But as far as its climate change possibilities, we're we're doing that. We're <laughs> we've um, well surpassed. Yes, we have outdone take that volcano. So <laughs> also you would potentially expect the volcanoes to have uh i don't know you would see it more over history right like Mm. volcanoes haven't changed that much in fact there's some studies that are suggesting that climate change because of the way that it will shift our surface ice may result in more volcanoes (laughs) erupting um i didn't go all the way down that rabbit hole but that study's out there. That's exciting. <laughs> but if you take a look, Sarah, I've put a little graph in a little bit lower. Again, this is NASA. This is the amount of carbon dioxide that's been in the atmosphere historically mm-hmm. and where we are today. Can you describe that map a little bit, that graph? So you'll see this a lot where there are they have it kind of marked at the year uh, 1950 and you can see some some cycling in the carbon dioxide levels and this is uh it it has always 
stayed below that 1950s line. And we can talk a little, maybe a future episode about how we know um, in the past what carbon dioxide levels uh, looked like. But basically, never before that we've been able to determine has atmospheric carbon dioxide gone above this level. My eyesight's not good enough. What is that? 300 yeah, it's Parts about 300 something, yeah. Um, and now we are all the way up around 420 parts per million. So we've jumped as far above that line, basically, as we've ever been below it. Yeah, that the, the scale of this map, again, is almost a million years from like now backwards. And the the line is definitely wiggly, like the carbon dioxide over a long period of time Mm -hmm. has varied over time. And I'm sure that has impacted the warming. Um, But we are well outside of that norm at this point, Um, which sort of brings me to the next one. I remember hearing a politician say something along these lines in the last couple of years, which is basically, why are they trying to villainize carbon? Carbon is super important. We're made of carbon. Plants are made of carbon. Carbon is natural. Carbon is good. How would you respond to that, Sarah, if someone said that to you? I would agree with them. Carbon is good and it is important and it is um, it makes up life on Earth and the greenhouse gas effect is important and it allows life to exist uh, on this planet. All of those things are true. We need carbon in the atmosphere. But this goes back to what we were talking about before. We have manipulated, for lack of a better word, the carbon cycle. We have changed the way that carbon would naturally move through the earth, through our technological advances, through things, using things that I'm very grateful for. Look, I'm glad I have my uh, air conditioning and my heater and whatever. But we have undeniably changed the flow of carbon uh, on earth and again we've we've thrown that cycle out of balance and that's what we're seeing the impact of yeah i think that's the key is is this balance sort of idea it's it i think it might not be as emotionally evocative but it is i think easy for people to picture in mm-hmm. their brains and I like to think like, yeah, water is also good and necessary for life. But if you have too much of it, you will still drown. Um, <laughs> so there, there's such thing as too much of a good thing. Um, the, the things that we breathe are part of that active carbon cycle. It's from actually the plants and the animals we eat. We get that carbon ingested and that's part of the way we metabolize it. We get rid of it as we breathe out that carbon into the air. But uh, yeah, when we are burning fossil fuels, it's just a kind of a different ballgame. We are we are contributing things that aren't part of that active cycle. And like you said, they give us great things that we're very appreciative of. But I think we also have to think about the cost that that mm-hmm. has is that has benefited humanity in so many ways. But now we we're going to have to pay for the carbon that we're using in some way. So how how do we start managing that? Right. And and now we we you know, we know things now that we didn't know before <laughs> and so now we are figuring out better ways to do things that we need to be taking advantage of. Right. And again, it would be way easier if we could just be like air conditioning is great and and I like being able to get into a car and drive where I want to. It gets me fast. It, it helps take care of me. Electricity. But um but it doesn't come without its drawbacks and it's going to be harder to change than it is to continue the same, but the uh, cost of staying the same is going to be higher. Um, Which brings me to a different type of myth, which is that humans are the worst and we should get rid of all of them. This is maybe (laughs) actually the one that makes me the angriest (laughs) in all this because we, you know, we've talked about our personal beliefs and, and all of that. And also just deepens a divide i feel like sure so because i do feel like human life is precious so i think i think it can hurt the most when you have people who you feel like you're on your team Mm -hmm. (laughs) then go this so this is not from someone who's a climate denier this is someone who acknowledges climate change is happening but they're pessimist about it um and i think there's a fundamental flaw in this viewpoint and i can't say that i haven't felt 
this sort of generalized sentiment every once in a while <laughs> when something terrible happens. It's like, oh, people do bad things. People do bad things. We're the worst. Um, and part of it is because I know that we can do better. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, but we're existing is not a crime. We are part of nature. We are not different from nature. Society has not necessarily reinforced that fact. And it is those societies that are not reinforcing those facts that are the ones who are having the biggest impact on the climate. There are lots of cultures today who see themselves as part of nature, live successfully alongside nature, um, calling out again, indigenous folks around the world protect more of the world's biodiversity. um, And they're more successful at managing it than many national parks and nonprofits are. So they're people. They are just like us, but they have a different relationship with how they manage their resources. And they are also the same people who are going to have the worst impacts from climate change because they don't have the infrastructure to be able to mitigate a lot of those impacts. So what I don't like about this argument is it both doesn't acknowledge that those people exist and that it is possible but also it is just so pessimistic that it it makes change feel paralyzing like the only way we can solve this is if we go away you look like you're percolating on that like you're yeah not- no I, I i i think i largely agree with all of that and yet like i said it, like this is just fundamentally like i i can't i value human life as much as i value all other life uh, on this planet and so i don't think it's getting rid of people is is not the answer people are capable of doing good (laughs) and so also it's just not logical so it's not helpful to me like (laughs) we're not going anywhere so it's just not a helpful thing to say uh, in my mind period when there are real solutions that humans can contribute towards in a positive way and that's what we need to do so i think maybe that's the other piece that i was trying to get at there like there this is just there's no point uh to this argument i think you also touched on earlier that it deepens the divide and i'm i'm guessing you mean between people who know climate change is happening and people who don't want to do anything at least about climate change Because to me, it buys into this false argument that has been presented for a long time, that it is people or the environment. You only get to choose one. The other will suffer at the cost of the other. Um, And so why would you be Um, anti-people? This is an argument that timber industries would put forward in an argument to destroy the habitats of owls, for example, instead of acknowledging that that forest had value to the people around as well as the owls. And so I think that that's also the mindset that we have to mm-hmm. think about is like, how is helping the environment also helping people? Like this is all for our own good as well. Yeah. And the last one I have is it's too late anyway. So might as well burn baby burn until we, I guess, burn to a crisp on <laughs> the planet's surface. <laughs> We've seen the effects of climate change. I think the last two years have really been like we've had examples we can point to of at least this is not normal sort of things. We've had increased hurricanes. We've had terrible droughts and then followed by terrible flooding in places like California or the Midwest. Um, We're having a freakishly warm winter here in Pennsylvania. I think we have like things to start pointing to that. It does start to feel like, Oh, for some people, this is very, very real, but is there benefit to, making a large scale change if that change is too late. I feel sort of similarly about this that and remember we're calling these myths. I I'm, I've started using the word That's argument, fair, but yeah. you were calling these myths and I I feel the same way about this one as I did in the last one in some way is that this feels overly pessimistic and just not logical. Like the so yes, we we know that this is happening and we know that we're going to see effects. I was reading one article, I, I can't remember what it was, but the, the gist of it was, well, you know, keeping it, yeah, keeping a warming to less than 1.5 degrees Celsius is better than two, but keeping it to two is better than three. Keeping it to three is better than four. It, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how late we are. We still need to keep moving forward because any change that we do is better than not making a change. 
basically. Any mitigation that we can do is better than none at all, even if we don't get it to the the level that we've said we wanted, that we don't, okay, we don't make it to the level where we, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement was. But that doesn't mean we are just going to, you know, the earth is not going to explode. Like that's that's not what we're right. talking about uh, when we talk about these temperature thresholds. We're just trying to keep it uh, the best that we can so that, you know, folks who are going to be hit the hardest by this, that we're trying to protect them as much as possible. Um, it's not a, you know, this is not Super Mario Brothers. It's not game over if we miss a threshold. So that's why this is a myth in in my mind. Yeah, I think we had, we tackled the last myth as a philosophical argument that I still feel is, you know, borne out by just like the evidence in front of us. But if you're a data person for this one, um according to the IPCC report, if global temperatures reach 1.5 degrees Celsius, the report found that up to 14% of land species could face high risk of extinction. Like that's a depressing number. Like you're going to start to see things you recognize start to go away. Um, however, when you get to two degrees, it goes up to 18%, three degrees, 29%, four degrees, 39%. So the higher the number goes, it's not just, yeah, you pass the point and everything's screwed from there on out. We will see meaningful damage to our environment that escalates as those temperatures escalate. And that can be translated to human lives as well. Um, It's harder for us, I think, to bear out exactly where those disasters are going to happen. They have already, you know, identified places like islands and coastal areas as being very high risk areas. But that's what we're going to see if we just decide that it's too big. It's already happened. Let's just try and survive what's here. Like we can make a difference. The difference is meaningful. I was going to add something else, but I I decided that maybe that okay. goes off into a deeper, longer conversation. So we'll save it for okay. another episode. All right. Well, all right. Leaving it for another episode. That's the, I decided I could, again, you can find whatever climate myths that you like out there. Um, You can find ones that are about ways that we tackle climate change. You can find ones about particular events being attributed to climate change, whatever you want to find, you can find it out there and you could probably find the counter argument as well. So I wanted to stick with just a couple so this episode didn't go on too far. But Sarah, did I miss anything? Just anything you want to add to this conversation? I Well, for now, I'll just say I really like doing this. I feel like this was really nice to talk through without getting too deep in the weeds of climate science, which a lot of times I feel like is over my head, quite honestly. But I, I feel like you hit on a few of the things that I hear the most often and uh, yeah, so I, I just I really enjoy talking through these in this scenario. And I feel like we should have we should return. I feel like we should have more parts to this and tackle a few others as time goes on, too. I agree. And I think this kind of brings me back to something that we've talked about uh, as sort of the core philosophy of our podcast, which is that every little action we do counts. So every little thing we can do to combat climate change counts at an individual and a community level. We also need to acknowledge, of course, the roles of corporations and governments in that, but all of that is interrelated. All of that is connected and we all have power at different levels that we can make some sort of change. And so I think that it's important to remind ourselves of the science, remind ourselves of the stakes, um, but also like keep a grip on like what the reality actually is rather than buying into maybe some of the alarmist rhetoric, both the pessimism side or the denial side and really kind of ground ourselves and where are we and what can we do? So that's what my thoughts were as I sat outside (laughs) in February (laughs) looking at daffodils that are very confused. So so yeah, Uh, thanks for listening and we will come back with our challenge for the week. So my challenge for the week for you guys um, is twofold. Um, One, if you're in an area of the country, maybe take a look at like that you're experiencing different weather patterns than normal. Take a look at 
maybe the historical temperatures of this time period, just to kind of give yourself an idea of like what what is normally happening in in your particular area in this local space. Because remember, weather and climate are different. They are connected, but they are not the same thing. So sometimes these like micro trends, it's good to contextualize them in the bigger ones. My other challenge is that if you feel like you've heard something along the lines of a climate myth, and you like have this gut feeling that it's not true, or maybe that it is true, like do some research, look at at sources, especially things like NASA. They don't really have a horse in the race to <laughs> to say that, you know, there, there's no there's no money involved, basically. So to try and find those non-biased scientific sources that will give you the best information about how to think about those things and maybe how to talk about them. Love that. Yeah. NASA is my go-to for that reason. Like I like to find the, cause you, again, yeah. you Google anything to do with climate and you'll find a million websites, half of them. Well, that's, I shouldn't say that, but some of them are going to say one thing. Some of them are going to say another thing. Some of them are very clearly biased one way or the other. I'm like, even NASA, I feel good about you. Pretty reliable. <laughs> and there, there's a lot of websites out there that like sort of masquerade as official sources. Mm-hmm. So be careful of that. I remember even trying to look up climate change books on Amazon last year. The top one that popped up was a climate denial book, which was wild to me. Like knowing that that was that when I typed climate change book, the first thing that popped up is one that's like not real. And then all the rest of them are like, no, it's real. This is how we fix it. This is how this is the science. <laughs> so that was a little depressing. So yeah, look for for an official source, um, especially if you're not climate literate, like NASA's website is very much designed so that you can understand it. It's digestible. So check it out. Yeah. If you um, do it or, or send us your questions and and what are you encountering? Because we can do some research for you too. If you're not feeling equipped or you feel like other people might benefit from the research of that question. Yes, absolutely. I was going to suggest that too, because I think we will do more of these. So if you have a climate myth or a climate question that you are interested in hearing us talk about, you can send that to us. And as always, there's lots of ways that you can do that. We do have a page on Facebook. You can find us at A Little Greener Podcast. You're welcome to message us on there. Uh, We're also on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We're on Twitter at A Greener Podcast. And you can always feel free to email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for talking to me, Sarah. Yay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, We'll talk to you next week. Bye.